0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: bird third believed that there was naturally a community, not a conflict of interest between a king and his great subjects. At the March 1337 Parliament, Edward laid out this philosophy in clear terms. He told his assembled lords that, "'Among the marks of royalty we consider it to be the chief that, through a due distribution of positions, dignities, and offices, it is buttressed by wise councils and fortified by mighty powers.' Because England had seen a lessening in its pool of noble families headed by formidable earls and barons, he argued, THE REALM HAS LONG SUFFERED A SERIOUS DECLINE IN NAMES, HONORS, AND RANKS OF DIGNITY. EDWARD ANNOUNCED TO THE REALM THAT HE WAS TAKING DECISIVE ACTION TO ESTABLISH A NEW GENERATION OF ENGLISH NOBLES WITH WHOM HE COULD SHARE BOTH THE PRESTIGE AND THE BURDENS OF KINGSHIP. THEY ALL WERE MEN WHO HAD PROVED THEIR SERVICE TO HIM OVER THE TEN YEARS OF HIS REIGN, AND IN SEVERAL CASES HAD BEEN AT HIS SIDE SINCE THAT DARING RAID ON NOTTINGHAM CASTLE. Here were the natural boon companions of an ambitious young king, and they would soon be pressed into action alongside him. Six earls were created in Parliament. First among them was William Montague, leader of the 1330 coup. Since that famous October day Montague had been demonstrating to the king that he was both a valuable diplomat and a brave soldier in the wars against Scotland, during which he had lost an eye. He had already been rewarded with much booty, patronage, and land-grants, but now Montague was raised to the rank of Earl of Salisbury. His leading co-conspirators from 1330 were similarly rewarded. Robert Ufford became Earl of Suffolk, and William Clinton was made Earl of Huntingdon, a title that had once been held by the Scottish kings. Meanwhile the scions of England's greatest families were given titles to reflect their status. Henry of Gromont became Earl of Derby, William Boone, another veteran of 1330 and the Scottish Wars, became Earl of Northampton, Hugh Audley, a long-serving soldier and an early opponent of Roger Mortimer's, was awarded the Earldom of Gloucester. Edward and Philippa's eldest son, Edward of Woodstock, was a healthy six years old in March 1337. From Tudor times he became known by the title of the Black Prince, for his supposedly black armour— and diabolical soldierly reputation. In 1337, however, he was given a new title to reflect his importance as the heir to the throne of England. Edward III made him Duke of Cornwall, the first time that the French title Duke had been translated to England, and a recognition that the status of the greatest royal earldom now had special familial status. This was both a rapid re-granting of the late John of Eltham's title, AND AN IMPLICIT STATEMENT THAT NEVER AGAIN WOULD A LOWLY NOBODY LIKE Gaveston HOLD SO GREAT A ROYAL TITLE. A MAGNIFICENT FEAST, AT WHICH HUNDREDS OF POUNDS WERE SPENT ON FOOD AND ENTERTAINMENT, WAS GIVEN TO CELEBRATE THE NEW PEERS. TWENTY KNIGHTS WERE ALSO CREATED, AND EVERYONE REJOICED IN STYLE, WITH SEPARATE COURTS HELD BY EDWARD AND PHILIPPA. THIS UNPRECEDENTED CREATION OF LANDED MAGNATES WAS NO FIT OF IDLE GENEROSITY ON EDWARD'S PART. Rather, the situation in 1337 demanded it. The king needed military supporters with resources, mighty households, and an obligation to the crown to fight. Not only was Scotland perpetually turbulent, but war with France was once again looming. This time, however, the terms and the stakes had escalated and the personalities arrayed on either side were the most intractable, aggressive, and well-matched since Richard I had faced off against Philip Augustus at the end of the twelfth century. The Plantagenet world was on the brink of a war that would last not merely for months or years, but for generations. The Hundred Years' War Begins on January 26, 1340, Edward III entered the Flemish city of Ghent, with his entire household accompanying him, including his heavily pregnant queen, who was carrying the couple's sixth child in ten years. The boy who was born on March sixth was John of Gaunt, his name an English variant on the name of the town. A huge ceremony had been prepared for the king's arrival, and the large open square of the Friday Market was being lavishly decorated in expectation of a large crowd. A platform was set up in the middle of the square, and all around it hung banners displaying Edward's royal coat of arms, but these were not the arms with which bystanders would have been familiar. For a hundred and forty-two years, since the penultimate year of Richard the Lionheart's reign, Plantagenet kings had depicted their English sovereignty through three lions passant-gardant, commonly known in heraldry as leopards, against a bright red field. Now there was something radically different about the royal arms. Rather than striding proudly across the whole coat of arms, the leopards had been quartered with the ancient arms of the French crown, golden fleur-de-lis against a blue field. Moreover, the French fleur-de-lis took pride of place, displayed in the upper left and lower right corners of the coat of arms. It was a stunning alteration to a generations-old heraldic device, and it left in no doubt the message Edward was about to deliver to the crowd that assembled in the market-square. Edward walked out onto the stage and stood flanked by the great men of his court and the magistrates of the three most important towns of Flanders. Raising his voice to shout over the hubbub of the crowd, he called on the townspeople of Ghent to recognize him as the King not only of England, but also of France. He demanded their obedience, and took homage from various Flemings, including Guy of Flanders, half-brother of the Count. Edward reassured all those before him that he would respect their liberties and protect their mercantile rights. Then he gave the day over to a typically Edwardian celebration, a jousting contest. This event, held in the packed market-place of Ghent, marked the most profound reimagining of the Plantagenet crown since Edward I had determined to make himself a modern-day Arthur. Edward's formal assumption of the royal titles and style of the King of France fundamentally changed relations between the two kingdoms in a way that had not been achieved even under Henry II. It also sparked an exhausting, seemingly endless period of hostility between the two realms that became known as the Hundred Years' War. The roots of the war can be found deep and tangled in the fabric of Plantagenet history and the politics of the fourteenth century. The traditional focus of disagreement between the French and English kings was a running dispute over the English king's status as Dukes of Aquitaine. This had been a cause of friction since 1259, when Henry III had agreed to the Treaty of Paris, doing homage to Louis IX for the duchy, and abandoning the family claims to Normandy, Anjou, and the rest of the empire. English and French interests had clashed repeatedly all across Northwestern Europe over the course of the fourteenth century, and the French crown was entering a new stage of aggressive expansion. French kings were determined to establish their rights, expand their borders, and spread the reach of their political power in a way that had not been attempted since the days of Philip II. This brought France into direct competition with English interests in trade battles in the Low Countries in the matter of Scotland which had been allied with France since 1295, and over control of shipping routes and trade in the Channel, where the English sent wool and later cloth across the sea passages to Flanders and brought wines back from Bordeaux. But beneath all these sources of mutual aggravation lay a more fundamental alteration in the status of the two crowns. In France the death of Charles IV in 1328 and the accession of Philip VI had brought to an end the direct line that had reigned since the accession of hugh capet in 987 throwing open a new age of dynastic uncertainty in the kingdom the young edward's visit to amiens to pay homage for his continental possessions had suggested acceptance of philip's claim and the principle that dissent follows salic law thanks to the violent politics that blighted the beginning of edward's reign His claim to the dual inheritance of France and England had been passed over with barely a whimper. By the time Mortimer and Isabella had been removed from power, Philip was established as King of France, and it seemed beyond the means of the young King Edward to start demanding a revision to the French succession, not least because every campaigning season between 1333 and 1337 was taken up by expeditions to Scotland. Instead of hostilities there had been cautious diplomacy between the two crowns. Exploratory talks were held over a new crusade in 1332, but Philip's decision to support David Bruce in 1334 was unacceptably provocative. But Philip was not alone in harbouring fugitives. In 1334 Edward had given his protection to Robert of Artois, an ageing but valiant fugitive from French justice, luckless enough to have slipped from being philip the vi's closest adviser and greatest friend to being his bitterest enemy robert was offered generous sanctuary by edward who valued his knightly bonhomie and military prowess but in doing so he roused the infernal ire of the french king and nobility A Flemish propaganda poem of the mid-1340s known as The Vows of the Heron blamed Robert for starting the war when he accused Edward of cowardice for failing to claim his rightful inheritance. The poem claimed that at a decadent amorous banquet Robert approached the king and presented him with a roasted heron caught that day by his falcon. "'I believe I have caught the most cowardly bird,' the poet had Robert tell the king and his courtiers. When it sees its shadow, it is terrified. It cries out and screams as if being put to death. It is my intention to give the heron to the most cowardly one who lives or has ever lived, that is, Edward Louis, i.e., Edward III, disinherited of the noble land of France of which he was the rightful heir. But his heart fails him, and because of his cowardice, he will die without it. Edward's immediate response in the poem was to swear oath to "'Cross the sea, my subjects with me, set the country ablaze, and await my mortal enemy, Philip of Valois, who wears the fleur-de-lis. I renounce him, you can be sure of that, for I will make war on him by word and deed.'" The vows of the heron is pure propaganda, intended to paint Robert of Artois as a devious provocateur and Edward as a blustering licentious aggressor. It graphically evokes the willing belief among its audience that these things were so, and indeed it was Edward's harbouring of Robert of Artois that provided Philip with his casus belly. In December 1336 Philip had sent envoys to Gascony to demand Robert's extradition. The request was refused, and within a year Edward had sent envoys to Paris to Philip of Valois, who calls himself King of France. The diplomats renounced the English king's homage, Philip's predictable and immediate response was formally to confiscate Pontieu and Gascony. War had begun. When Edward stood on the stage in Ghent in 1340, England and France had already theoretically been at war for three years. Much of this had been a phony conflict, as both sides manoeuvred for allies and position. Edward had concentrated his war efforts on the Low Countries, where he paid the Count of Hainaut, the Duke of Brabant, and other allies tens of thousands of pounds in bribes to form a grand alliance against the French King. This was a conventional expensive tactic that Edward bolstered by purchasing the title of Imperial Vicar-General from the Emperor Ludwig IV of Germany, a title that gave him full imperial rights over the Lords of the Low Countries. The only significant fighting that had interrupted this costly diplomacy was in autumn 1339 when Edward brought an army to northern France to fight a vicious campaign in the border territories of the Cambrai sea and the Vermandois. Philip, meanwhile, had sent troops deep into Gascony, advancing as far south as Bordeaux. But these were preliminary skirmishes. The war escalated in 1340 when Edward made his formal claim to the French throne. This was to be something more than the traditional Anglo-French war. Granted, the struggle was still in essence that between a French king insistent on his rights and a Plantagenet lord of Aquitaine jockeying to offer as little deference as possible. English tactics followed a familiar pattern, bribing lords and princes in Flanders and on the eastern French border to create a military alliance in the north, while preparing an invasion force to campaign in the south but by activating his dynastic claim to the French throne, Edward was about to change the whole terms of engagement between the French and English royal houses. By October 1337, Edward had begun styling himself King of France and England in letters. Three years later he made his claim explicit and public in the ceremony at Ghent. This was no longer just a war between lord and vassal, it was to be framed as a war of succession, In which only one man could be left standing edward at sea as dusk approached on the evening of june twenty fourth thirteen forty six months after he had declared himself king of the better part of western europe edward stood aboard his flagship the cog thomas a large merchant style vessel with a single square sail and watched the sea offshore from Sloys in Flanders churn with the blood of tens of thousands of Frenchmen. He was wounded in the leg, but the injury was worth the pain. A fierce battle raged before him between the 213 French and Genoese ships of Philip VI's great army of the sea, and around a 120 and a 160 English sails, which had left East Anglia under Edward's own personal command two days previously. The English were murderously, brilliantly winning. Edward had crossed the Channel to put an army ashore in Flanders. It was a desperate action dictated by extreme circumstance. Two months earlier his friends and allies, the Earls of Salisbury and Suffolk, had been captured while fighting outside the town of Lille. Flanders was overrun by the French, and Queen Philippa had been taken hostage in Ghent, The channel was patrolled by French ships that threatened to ruin the English wool trade, and for two years the southern coast of England had been plagued by French pirates, who had reduced the town of Southampton to little more than a smouldering shell. Edward had been planning a large military invasion for some months. Inevitably word of the preparations had reached Philip, and a huge French fleet, detailed to blockade the ports and prevent the English army from landing, had been gathered from the coasts of Normandy and Picardy. Now, looking toward the coast, Edward saw that the French were ordered in a tight position, their vessels anchored and chained together in three lines across the mouth of the river Spin. After a night spent anchored within sight of the intimidating masts and armoured prows of the French fleet, Edward had directed his ships to approach the mouth of the Spin at around three p.m. They came up from the south-west, with the sun and the wind behind them. As he moved into view... He must have felt a pang of anxiety, even fear. He was about to fight one of the largest naval forces ever assembled in the channel. Failure would mean utter ruin. In the first line stood some of the largest ships ever launched into the channel, cogs carrying hundreds of men with crossbows bristling, including the Christopher, a giant ship stolen from the English some months earlier. Behind them bobbed the smaller ships. In the third line were merchant boats and the royal galleys. The English attacking force at Sloys had sailed to France against the pleas and warnings of Edward III's ministers, led by Archbishop Stratford of Canterbury, who had warned him that the size of the French fleet meant certain death and destruction to the smaller English armada. Edward, stubborn and determined, had set out from the mouth of the river Orwell, leaving his advisers stung by a harsh rebuke. Those who are afraid can stay at home. A medieval sea battle was much like a land battle. There was little maneuver or pursuit. When two navies came together it was a collision, followed by boarding and a desperate bloody fight at close quarters. Although some large weapons like catapults and giant crossbows were carried on board, by and large it was bolts and arrows and the violent smash of men-at-arms maces and clubs that did the damage this great naval battle was so fearful wrote the chronicler Geoffrey baker that he would have been a fool who dared to watch it even from a distance the french commanded by hugues quiere and nicolas beuchet were undone by their decision to shackle their ships together in three ranks across the mouth of the spin thereby sacrificing all mobility for what seemed like the security of close ranks the two rows of vessels behind the front line were barred from fighting by the ships in front of them and as the English attacked, the French found it impossible to evade a head-on assault. The air filled with the blast of trumpets, the throb of drums, the fizz of arrows, and the splintering sound of huge ships smashing into one another. The English fleet attacked the French in waves. Each ship rammed into an enemy vessel, attaching itself with hooks and grappling-irons, as English archers and French crossbowmen traded hailstorms of vicious arrows and bolts. The bowmen took up high vantage points, either on the raised end-castles of the boat or on the masts, and when they had killed enough of the defenders, men-at-arms clambered aboard the enemy ship to mete out death and destruction at close quarters. The French were trapped and slaughtered. "'It was indeed a bloody and murderous battle,' wrote Jean Froissart, the French poet and chronicler, whose account of the Hundred Years' War was one of the great works of contemporary history in the 14th century. Froissart noted that sea-fights are always fiercer than fights on land because retreat and flight are impossible. Each man is obliged to hazard his life and hope for success, relying on his own personal bravery and skill. Between sixteen thousand and eighteen thousand French and Genoese were killed, either cut down on deck or drowned both French commanders died, Quieret was killed as his ship was boarded, and Béuchet was hanged from the mast of his ship. The Battle of Sloys was one of the greatest early naval victories in English history. The English and their Flemish allies cheered and celebrated the victory in disbelief. Almost the entire French fleet had been captured or destroyed, eliminating at a stroke much of the danger to English merchant ships in the Channel and Philip's ability to blockade the continental coastline The death toll alone on the French side was shocking. The English monastic chronicler Thomas of Burton wrote that, "'For three days after the battle in all the water of the spin there seemed to be more blood than water, and there were so many dead and drowned French and Normans there that it was said, ridiculing them, that if God had given the fish the power of speech after they had devoured so many of the dead, they would thereafter have spoken fluent French. Centuries later the Elizabethans and Jacobeans thought of Sloys as a historical precursor to the Spanish Armada. The sixteenth-century writer of the play Edward III, likely co-written by Shakespeare, although the following passage is not thought to be his, imagined the aftermath thus purple the sea, whose channel filled as fast with streaming gore that from the maimed fell, as did her gushing moisture break into the crannid cleftures of the through-shot planks. Here flew a head dissevered from the trunk, there mangled arms and legs were tossed aloft, as when a whirlwind takes the summer dust and scatters it in middle of the air. Thus the Battle of Sloys was later immortalized in English maritime history, BUT AT THE TIME IT WAS ONLY ONE VICTORY AMID A TIDE OF DISCONTENT. AFTER THREE YEARS OF FIGHTING, EDWARD'S WAR WITH FRANCE HAD PUT GREATER STRAIN ON ENGLISH GOVERNMENT AND ROYAL FINANCE THAN ANY MILITARY PROJECT SINCE THE THIRD CRUSADE. SLOYS WAS A GREAT VICTORY, NO DOUBT, BUT IT CAME AT GREAT COST. EDWARD'S WAR WAS CONCEIVED ON THE GRANDEST POSSIBLE SCALE. The Lannacost chronicler estimated payments to Flemish and German allies from thirteen thirty seven to thirteen forty at one thousand marks a day, according to others two thousand. This was an exaggeration, but not a wild one. When he stood on the Thomas watching French ships burn in thirteen forty, Edward had already spent four hundred thousand pounds on the war, much of it owed as debt to Italian banks, mainly the Bardi and the Peruzzi of Florence, although he also had substantial accounts with the portinari of florence and the Busdraghi of lucca as well as with banks and merchants in the german hansa and the low countries at home the northern merchant william de la pole organized even greater loans from syndicates of merchants from london and york who advanced hundreds of thousands of pounds to the crown although usury was still forbidden Christian banks and merchants employed a variety of ingenious bookkeeping devices to hide the fact that interest on loans ran as high as forty per cent. Royal crowns and jewels stood as collateral against the loans, as did vast amounts of plate forcibly borrowed from English religious houses. The large debts Edward had run up throughout Europe were already beginning to cause him some political difficulties. Exactly a month after the French fleet was destroyed, The earls of Northampton, Warwick, and Derby were arrested in Brussels by creditors. They had stood guarantors of debts that were in default, and it was only with some difficulty that Edward had them released. Back at home, England suffered for Edward's new war. The effects were felt at every level of society. Taxation was levied heavily and often. Tenths and fifteenths were imposed on the country every year between 1337 and 1339, and a general ninth followed in 1340. The hated practice of purveyance was rife. Efforts were made to rig the wool market by selling monopolies on the trade to leading merchants, although the scheme eventually failed. Popular protest songs captured the discontent of the poor in their struggle to cope with crown demands that squeezed harder than any before them. One poem, now known as The Song Against the King's Taxes, complained that, "'Such tribute can in no matter last long,' out of emptiness who can give or touch anything with his hands? People are reduced to such ill plight that they can give no more. I fear if they had a leader they would rise in rebellion. Loss of property often makes people fools. A rural labourer born in 1300 would have been lucky to reach his fortieth birthday at the time of Sloys. Had he done so he would have lived through near-constant war on two fronts, seven years of the great famine coinciding with a period of plummeting wages and onerous rates of taxation, while hearing rumours that Edward III rather enjoyed his expensive campaigns in Flanders as an excuse to hold lavish, wasteful, and costly tournaments. England would not feel the fury of a popular rising for another forty years, but in 1340 Edward's chronic need for cash had driven the country back into the sort of political crisis that had rocked his grandfather in 1297 and beset his father for the better part of his reign. His need for cash would soon pinch his progress in France and embitter many who remained at home. Violent seas threw the king's boat about for three days as it stuttered from the coast of Flanders to the mouth of the Thames. It was the very end of November 1340, five months after the Battle of Sloys, and with winter approaching, a channel crossing was more dangerous than usual, but Edward was desperate and furious, ready to thrash England and his ministers with every ounce of his considerable energy. His war with France was floundering, short of money, short of glory, and short of allies, and Edward had convinced himself that the fault lay with the Regency administration he had left behind— which was led by John Stratford, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The King was convinced that he was being deliberately starved of the funds he needed to fight his war. "'I believe that the Archbishop wished me by lack of money to be betrayed and killed,' he later wrote to the Pope. His solution was to return from Flanders and to mete out severe punishment in person. The boat reached London long after the city's regular nightly curfew on November thirtieth, 1340, Having that evening navigated a grey, turbulent Thames estuary so rough, said the author of the contemporary history known as the Scala Cronica, that Edward himself was in jeopardy of drowning. Around midnight the captain put into a wharf by the Tower of London. The drenched and grim-faced passengers disembarked by the flicker of torchlight. As they looked up, tired, cold, and wet, it was as if the whole tower were asleep. There was no sound and no movement on the ramparts. The King's return was not expected. Although there should have been a close watch kept on the fortress after dark, no one saw them arrive. That London's fortress stood apparently unguarded during wartime enraged Edward. He burst into the tower, inspected it in fury, and began to make a list of men he wished brought before him, his treasurer and his chancellor and their department officials, his justices, the mayor of London and the London merchants who were supposed to be managing the wool trade, and, of course, the constable of the tower, upon whose watch the capital's key strong-point had been left so disgracefully unguarded. Edward's anger was easy to understand. After three years of sporadic fighting he was almost bankrupt. Sloyes had been a great victory, but the months that followed saw a costly stalemate, as Philip VI sidestepped attempts to draw him into battle. He had dismissed the English king's eccentric offer of a personal duel or a staged battle between a hundred knights from either side, considering that a pudgy French king approaching his fiftieth birthday was no match for a virile twenty-eight-year-old Plantagenet, and he had nothing to gain and much to lose in the tournament with live bets on the outcome. This came as a personal affront to Edward. Two military operations that followed the offer, and attacks on the border towns of Tournay and Saint Omer cost a great deal of money and manpower, but led in every case to nothing but slaughter and retreat. Chevauchet, armed horseback charges through the countryside designed solely to cause terror and chaos among the local people, might gratify the soldiers who rode on them, but yielded no strategic advances. The truce of Eplechin, which established peace everywhere from Scotland to Gascony, and concluded a season of fruitless campaigning, was hardly the decisive blow he had wished for when he had declared war three years previously. There was no doubt in Edward's mind that a chronic shortage of war-funding was to blame for the English failures after Sloys. Edward was in massive arrears to his Flemish allies, and could not fight on until they were paid the enormous sums they had been promised for their support. For this he needed his ministers to extract cash from the realm in any way they could. From this sticking-point erupted the gravest crisis of his reign. On December first, 1340, the morning after his tirade in the Tower, Edward embarked on a wholesale purge of his government. He began to dismiss his officials from the top, and worked his way down. First to go were the Chancellor and the Treasurer, Then the Chief Justice of Common Pleas, one of the two most senior judges in England, was arrested, along with four other judges, the constable of the Tower, and three leading English merchants. A number of exchequer officials were fired, and instructions were issued to the clerks who remained to provide a full audit of their recent transactions. Edward then arranged for tax receipts now to be paid directly into an emergency treasury at the Tower of London. Outside London Edward purged his customs officials— and replaced about half the sheriffs and all the coroners and descheaters, responsible for collecting royal revenues in the shires of England. A public judicial inquiry known as a commission of Oyer and Terminer, to hear and to decide, was established to travel from county to county, rooting out corruption with a license to hear complaints about abuses of power by royal officials stretching back to his father's reign. Then Edward turned on his Archbishop of Canterbury for revenge, Stratford was President of the Regency Council, and thus in the King's eyes ultimately accountable for all the failings he perceived in English government. His brother, Robert Stratford, Bishop of Chichester, was the Chancellor whom Edward had already fired. In an angry exchange of letters and public accusations, he charged John Stratford with keeping money from him, obstructing tax requests in Parliament, and abusing his authority. Stratford was unmoved. To his mind, fault lay not with his administration, but with the king himself, who made excessive demands on the country, heeded the advice of ignorant friends, and acted as a tyrant when he made summary arrests of his subjects, and threatened the rights of the church. He replied to Edward's letters in equally angry terms. He called his king a new Rehoboam, a reference to the biblical king who ignored wise counsel for the words of his young friends, and thus oppressed his people it was a barbed comment Rehoboam was famous for having told the people of israel my father made your yoke heavy and i will add to your yoke my father also chastised you with whips but i will chastise you with scorpions 1 kings chapter 12 verse 14 and in case that was too cryptic for a king who spent more time at tournaments than in his study stratford spelled out the comparison he accused Edward of breaking the Magna Carta and his coronation oath, warning him that, "'What happened to your father, sire, you know well!' Over Christmas and in early spring, Edward held a series of typically lavish tournaments around the country. Meanwhile a continuing public war of letters with Stratford included an astonishingly angry assault referred to by Stratford as the libellus famosus, notorious libel, in which the King upgraded his disparagement of the Archbishop, and accused him of treason. This was dangerous. Edward was correct to perceive that there had been mismanagement in his absence, but to accuse an Archbishop of Canterbury of treason was to risk incurring suspicions of tyranny. Stratford refused to be moved by the King's rage, denied most of the accusations made against him, and demanded the right to defend himself in Parliament. The fuming King began to fill his letters to the Archbishop with personal abuse. Stratford, in his heated opposition to the King, was aware of the precedent set by his predecessor Thomas Becket. Matters came to a head when a Parliament was called for March 1341. Using the pretext of non-payment of taxes, Edward attempted to have his servants physically prevent Stratford from entering the painted chamber in the Palace of Westminster where Parliament met. Meanwhile he allowed into the chamber a number of his household servants and advisers, who had no right to sit there. Stratford took up an indignant place directly outside the chamber door, holding his archbishop's staff, and steadfastly refusing to move until he was admitted. For three days a standoff prevailed, until the Earl of Surrey stepped in to mediate, telling the King, "'Parliaments were not wont to be like this, for here those who should be foremost are shut out, while there sit other men of low rank who have no business to be here.' Stratford was eventually permitted to enter the chamber, only to hear thirty-two charges of misconduct brought against him. If Edward felt he had won, he was mistaken. During the debates that followed it soon became clear that the wrathful King had overreached, the whole weight of national support lay behind the archbishop, a petition was presented showing that he had the backing of a number of the great magnates and prelates, the community of London, and the parliamentary commons. There was little a king who wished to keep his throne could do in the teeth of such opposition. By May third, 1341, Edward had been forced humiliatingly to climb down. The king was persuaded by the Earl of Salisbury and other loyalists to take part in a parliamentary reconciliation with the archbishop, and agree to a programme of reform. Tax collectors were made accountable to Parliament, and investigations were launched into purveyance. The King promised that in the future the great Ministers of State, the Chancellor, Treasurer and Judges, the Keeper of the Privy Seal, and the leading men of the Royal Household, were to be sworn in Parliament, while Lords and Royal Ministers should not be arrested and judged, except in Parliament and by their peers. Fortunately for Edward this was the most peaceful end to a full-blown political crisis that had been seen in England since 1297. He vowed in the sort of bombastic fashion that would have suited Henry the Second, that he would never appoint another churchman as a minister, or indeed any man whom he could not hang, draw, and behead when he let him down. But this was grandstanding, and it ignored the momentous implications of the crisis of 1341 for both the French war and the future government of the realm. Edward's personal quarrel with his archbishop had thrown up a principle by which the activities of the crown's leading officials could be scrutinized in Parliament a mechanism had been established that meant England could settle political crises without descent into bloody civil war. Edward's grudging concessions earned him enough political goodwill to negotiate a new source of funding for his wars. Rather than having to collect taxes by levying a movables tax of a ninth and taking a forced loan, Parliament had agreed to grant the King a direct tax on wool, one of England's major exports, which raised an astonishing amount of revenue. Nearly 30,000 wool sacks were appropriated for the crown to sell on. Their value of around a £126,000 made this the heaviest tax to be levied on England since the end of King John's reign. While all this took place, Queen Philippa was at the royal residence of King's Langley in Hertfordshire, where on June fifth, 1341, she gave birth to another son. He was given a traditional English name, Edmund, and a tournament was held to celebrate the birth. The assembled nobles then travelled together to London to attend a series of war-councils to advance the next stage of the King's quarrel with France. It would not have escaped Edward's notice that his survival in the recent quarrel with Stratford had been assured by the fact that no great nobleman had risen up to oppose him, as Thomas of Lancaster and Simon de Montfort had done to his ancestors. Despite the stresses of Edward's difficulties in France, the onerous nature of his financial demands, and his own hard-headed behaviour, Edward enjoyed an unusually strong relationship with the leading men of his realm. They would in time come to enjoy the rewards of that relationship together. Dominance In the heat of July 1346 the English army marched through the scorched landscape of coastal Normandy, All around it fields were lit up in ghastly orange by marauding bands of arsonists. Ghost-towns and villages lay smashed, burned, and looted behind them, abandoned by terrified families. The roads inland teemed with refugees fleeing the maw of destruction. Thousands of unruly soldiers from England and Wales had poured ashore off a massive fleet of 750 ships in mid-July, led by the English aristocracy and gentry military men. As they marched they spread out over the fertile Norman countryside, fanning across a front twelve to fifteen miles wide to torch or pillage all that they came across. The summer air would have been thick with choking smoke and loud with the screams of villagers who had been too slow or too feeble to escape. As the army marched a few miles inland, two hundred English ships hugged the shoreline, provisioning the men on land and disembarking to destroy every settlement they sailed past, until one royal clerk estimated that everything within five miles of the coastline had been ruined or plundered. This had once been Plantagenet land. Long ago, when John was on the throne, it had been raided and burned by the Capetian kings battling their way west. Now, John's great-great-grandson Edward III was exacting his brutal revenge as he shepherded an invasion force of perhaps ten thousand men in the opposite direction, crossing the Duchy of Normandy. Heading for the Seine and the cities of Rouen and Paris, Edward had suffered a setback in Scotland in july thirteen forty one when David the Second had returned from Normandy to oust Robert Stuart re-establishing the Bruce monarchy. Edward had eventually been forced to agree to a three-year truce in thirteen forty three that he was not more bullish in the aftermath of his brother-in-law's restoration might have been surprising were it not for events across the channel. In April 1341, Duke John III of Brittany had died, and Edward had been presented with an opportunity to pursue war with the French via a proxy conflict. The main focus of the war between the Plantagenets and Philip VI's new French royal house of Valois shifted to a succession crisis in Brittany, as Edward backed John de Montfort, and Philip supported his cousin Charles de Blois. The war of Breton succession lasted on and off for five years. The logistical difficulties presented by fighting in northwestern France were considerable, and Edward suffered some significant casualties. Foremost among them was Robert of Artois, the first to encourage the English king to pursue his claim to the French crown. Robert had subsequently become a trusted captain in Edward's armies. He died after complications from wounds sustained during an attack on the town of Vannes. At some point between thirteen forty one and thirteen forty three, Edward had commissioned a copy of William of Newburgh's History of Henry II's Reign, which recalled the glorious days when kings of England had ruled Normandy, Maine, Touraine, and Anjou, as well as Brittany and Greater Aquitaine. The war, in Edward's mind, was gaining a greater purpose than simply safeguarding the status of his Gascon lands and Pontieux. His ambition was growing, and he was now beginning to countenance a full turning back of the clock, to a time before the 1259 Treaty of Paris, before the loss of Normandy in 1204 even, when his ancestors had ruled over a mighty continental empire. A new gold coinage issued in 1344 for use on the international exchange markets proclaimed Edward to all the merchants of Europe as King of England and France. This was becoming more than simply a piece of tactical rhetoric. In 1345, when peace talks over Brittany mediated by Pope Clement VI at Avignon collapsed, Edward escalated hostilities. A three-pronged attack was planned. William de Boone, the Earl of Northampton, led an army into Brittany. Henry of Grosmont, Earl of Derby, who was fast becoming the King's best friend and most trusted commander, led another, smaller expedition south to Gascony, where he was appointed Lieutenant of Aquitaine. Edward himself led a vast force of between 14,000 and 15,000 men across the Channel to Normandy. All in all this was the most substantial military force that had been sent to France since John's attempt to retake Normandy in 1214. The character of the English war effort had changed since 1340. Edward had dropped his old-fashioned strategy of alliance building in the northwest and direct invasion in the south. Alliances were too expensive allies too prone to defect. One of the casualties of Edward's exorbitant bribes had been the Bardy Bank, to whose ruin the English king contributed when he failed to honour the massive debts incurred to his allies. By 1346 Edward's only remaining friends were the pro-English faction in Brittany and the Flemings. Every man sent to fight under the royal arms in 1346 came from England. Thus the brutal men who landed with the King in Saint-Vas-la-Hougue on the Norman coast on July twelfth, 1346, spoke in the same mother tongue. Their battle-cry was, "'Saint George!' the French cried, Montjoie Saint-Denis!' They had various specialties. Perhaps half were archers trained in their home villages to fire a deadly longbow with some accuracy. Others were engineers, miners, diggers, clerks, or servants. Many had been pressed into compulsory service, and some were criminals pardoned for their crimes in return for serving in the field. All were equipped and supplied with a huge wealth of supplies and weapons compulsorily purchased in a fearsome war drive. They brought with them thousands of white-painted bows and arrows, and more food than they could eat before it rotted. The army was instructed by Edward not to molest the local people, or to rob shrines and churches, or to commit wanton arson. The king commanded restraint, lamenting what a royal proclamation called the wretched fate of his people of France. But this was a vain hope. Edward had brought with him many old and accomplished soldiers heading professional companies of mounted archers, hobblers, and men-at-arms, but the king could by no means claim to dispose a uniformed, well-drilled army. Such was the unprecedented size of the invasion force that it included a sizable element of press-ganged infantry, poorly equipped and undisciplined villagers stirred up back in England by royal propaganda denouncing Philip VI and the French people as spies and aggressors who wished to invade England, convert the population to French speakers, and incite the Scots to invade the North. No instructions on earth could prevent them from tearing Normandy to pieces like a pack of distempered dogs. The army marched through the countryside, slaughtering and brutalizing as it went. Flags and lances bobbed overhead. The rearguard was marshaled by Thomas Hatfield, the warlike Bishop of Durham. The king commanded the middle. The vanguard was nominally led by Edward's eldest son, Edward, Prince of Wales, and Duke of Cornwall who came generations later to be known as the Black Prince. He was sixteen years old, tall and striking, already a brave young man in his father's mould. He had been knighted as soon as he landed from the ship, alongside some other young men of the campaign, William Montague, son of the Earl of Salisbury, and Roger Mortimer, grandson of Queen Isabella's former lover. The earls of Northampton and Warwick rode at the Black Prince's side to guide his hand the build-up to Edward's invasion had been cloaked in secrecy. Very few men had known the destination of his vast army before its departure from the English coast. Philip VI had received information that the king intended to make for Gascony to reinforce Henry of Gromont, now raised to the earldom of Lancaster after his father's death in 1345, in resisting the siege of Aiguillon, deep in the south-west at the confluence of the rivers Lowe and Garonne. Philip's son John, Duke of Normandy, was leading the siege. Thus, when Edward's main invasion force landed at Saint-Vast-la-Hougue, they found it largely undefended. The army reached Caen on July 26th. After brief negotiations with the garrison of the castle, they stormed the rich residential suburb of the city, leaving twenty-five hundred corpses lying torn and bleeding in the streets, and sending the richer citizens back as prisoners to England. Then they marched along the south bank of the Seine for a fortnight. The French army was belatedly moved into a position to defend against the invasion. It broke the bridges across the river to prevent the English from crossing it, and shadowed the invaders along the north bank. By August 12th the English were within twenty miles of Paris. Panic broke out in Europe's largest city, as the Parisians realized the impact that such a violent and depraved army would have upon their lives and livelihoods. Philip's government was compelled to call in fifty men-at-arms to attempt to keep the peace. Throughout the city and suburbs buildings were barricaded and doors battened shut as the people prepared for street-to-street fighting. In the distance, down river on the Seine, smoke was seen pouring from the towns of saint Cloud and Saint-Germain-en-Laye. The English were not far away. Philip VI sat with his advisers in Saint-Denis and floundered. On August 16th the English rebuilt the bridge over the Seine. Desperate to keep them at bay, Philip offered a pitched battle on a plain four miles south of Paris, and the French army marched to the allotted battleground. But instead of marching either south to give battle or east to besiege Paris, the English headed sharply north toward Flanders, in an attempt to join forces with a Flemish army that was in the field near Béthune. They marched north for more than a week, pushing so hard that the exhausted infantry wore through their shoes, and foraging parties left the countryside stripped and bare of all food and supplies. When they reached their intended rendezvous, the English found that the Flemish army had given up and gone home. It was a blow because the detour had given the French a chance to regroup. Philip's eldest son, John, Duke of Normandy, had abandoned Aiguillon in mid-August, and marched rapidly north to defend his beleaguered duchy. The road to battle had been joined. The English and French finally met before a forest between the villages of Crécy and Wardencourt on Saturday, August twenty sixth, 1346. The English were arrayed in two lines of infantry and men-at-arms in their impressive plate armour, who fought dismounted from their horses. The Black Prince commanded the front line with Warwick and Northampton. The King drew up the troops, laughing and joking with them as he did so, Then he took his place commanding the rear-guard. On either side of the foot-soldiers were two huge blocks of archers, dismounted from their horses and surrounded by baggage carts to protect them from cavalry charges. The archers would decide the fate of what became a famous battle. The French arrived at Crécy in dribs and drabs, but they comfortably outnumbered the English. Philip the Sixth may have had twenty-five thousand men in the field, including large numbers of Genoese mercenaries, the English had no more than half that. The French king arranged his men in three battalions, crossbowmen at the front, with two divisions of cavalry behind them, flanked by infantry. The sides shouted curses at each other, and waited for their commands. At around five o'clock in the evening it began to rain. Against the deafening rumpus of bugles and drums a signal was given, and the French crossbowmen and English archers began to loose their volleys. The English arrows were lethal. Fired at a rate of five or six per archer per minute, they fell from the sky like a blizzard. The crossbow bolts of Philip's Genoese mercenaries, meanwhile, were fired at less than half the rate, and fell short of their targets. Here was the vital difference between the sides an advantage that played out for much of the Hundred Years' War, the longbow was the deadliest weapon in the field. King David II of Scotland may have told Philip VI about the devastation that English longbows had inflicted at Hallidon Hill, but if he had the lesson was not passed on. The French cavalry, so long the pride and scourge of Europe, saw the crossbowmen in front of them falter, and took their faltering for cowardice. As the cavalry chased on the heels of the stricken crossbow men, they too were thrown violently from their horses by the sickening thud of deadly white wood and metal. Arrow shafts buried themselves deep into human flesh and horse flesh, creating a writhing, screaming chaos of rearing animals and dying, terrified men. As the arrows whipped through the air, so Edward ordered another novel assault. For the first time on the battlefields of France, cannon-fire was heard. The English had brought to the field several cannons, primitive devices that used gunpowder to shoot metal bolts and pellets wildly and in the general direction of the enemy. They were not so deadly as the longbows, but with the whistle of arrows punctuated by the ungodly roar of cannon-blasts, the demented battle-cries of men-at-arms in the melee, the agonized screams of terrified horses and men dying with their limbs severed and intestines spilled, the drums in the background and trumpets screaming into the evening, the battlefield at Crécy would have sounded like hell itself. The hero of the battle was afterward judged to be the Black Prince, who fought valiantly in his first armed conflict, slashing at armed men, cutting down horses, and bellowing instructions to the troops around him. At one point he was felled, and his standard-bearer had to commit an act of utter desperation, dropping his flag momentarily to help the stricken prince to his feet. Thus Froissart relayed the tale that has since entered the corpus of English legend. As the fighting escalated, the prince feared his men were falling too fast around him, and sent word to his father that he required help. "'Is my son dead or felled?' asked Edward, according to the chronicler. Informed that the prince was not dead but faced difficult odds, Froissart has Edward reply: "Return to him and to them that sent you here, and say that they send no more to me for any adventure as long as my son is alive. They suffer him this day to win his spurs." This audio book is continued on disc fourteen. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones continued, disc fourteen. Several hours of fierce bloody fighting routed King Philip and his allies. Their cavalry charges were skilfully made, their horsemen regrouped and recharged with enormous bravery and accomplishment at each turn, but they were as helpless against the dismounted English positions as Edward II's cavalry had been against the Scottish Shiltrums at Bannockburn. The French king lost thousands upon thousands of men, 1,542 knights and squires were found dead by the English front line, and the losses among the ordinary soldiers were innumerable. Many important nobles allied to Philip's cause lost their lives. They included the blind King John of Bohemia, who emulated Sir Giles d'Argentin, the tragic hero of Bannockburn. Hearing that the French were losing, the sightless king, certain that he would be cut down, asked to be led into the thick of battle. His body was found lying roped to the comrades who courageously undertook the suicide mission of leading him into the melee. Besides King John, two dukes and four counts were killed. They all were given honourable burials by the victorious English. Crécy was a landmark moment in the history of the medieval military. The new, more professional means of recruitment and radically revised field tactics that had been developing since the 1330s were proved not just against the Scots, but against the full might of the French army. Edward sent proud news of victory back to England, boasting in a letter to Parliament that the whole host of France has been laid low. The news very swiftly spread across the country via a network of Dominican friars whom the royal government at home employed as travelling newsmen. Crécy was a thundering, wonderful victory. It offered tangible return for all the hardships faced by the English people who had paid for their rampaging army. It offered massive propaganda value, bolstered further in October, when forces under Ralph Neville, Henry Percy, and William Zouche, Archbishop of York, routed a massive Scottish invading army at Neville's Cross in County Durham. Four Scottish earls were captured, and the Marshal, Chamberlain, and Constable of Scotland died the Earl of Moray, a senior Scottish nobleman, was killed in battle. Almost the entire military leadership of Scotland was removed in a single day, and King David II was captured and brought to England, where he remained a prisoner for eleven years. So 1346 was a very good year for English military power, yet it did not settle the war, for at the heart of Edward's tactics lay a paradox. Although his army had inflicted a crushing defeat on the combined forces of the French king and his son, it had in no way endeared the people of Normandy to English lordship, or won favour for an English king over a French one. And while he severely discomfited Philip VI, the Duke of Normandy, and their allies, Edward's victory at Casey did not destroy French military capability or curb Philip's overall political power. So the two sides remained in the field. For the rest of the summer the Earl of Lancaster continued to command action around Gascony. Sir Thomas Dagworth won a brilliant victory in Brittany, where he defeated and captured Charles de Blois at La Roche d'Arien. Meanwhile, in September 1346, Edward and the Black Prince began a brutal and terrible siege at Calais, which lasted until October 1347. The siege of Calais was in some ways an even greater military occasion than the Battle of Crécy. Almost 26,000 men took part. It was the largest English army to take the field during the entire history of the Hundred Years' War. Every English earl, with the exception of four who were elderly or infirm, was present at some point during the siege. The financial demands placed on England to maintain this massive army for more than a year were extraordinary, and included numerous new goods and export taxes that spurred widespread grumbling at home. Victory at Crecy, however, had transformed Edward's status. The chronicler Jean Lebel wrote that 1346 had shattered the image of the English, recasting them from an ignoble race into the finest and most knightly people on earth. As the English camped outside the walls of Calais, the national gathering of magnificent soldiers served simultaneously as a pageant of chivalry and a hostile invading army. Inside the town, meanwhile, the townsfolk grew so desperate and hungry that they began to chew the leather from their saddles. They held out for a year, during which Philip VI tried to goad the English into leaving Calais by bringing his armies close enough that they might be lured into a pitched battle. Eventually, in October 1347, when it became clear that the English could not and would not be removed, a deputation of citizens, wearing nooses around their necks to symbolise their utter subjection, emerged to surrender to edward in a choreographed show of chivalric might edward allowed queen philippa to plead successfully for clemency the bedraggled supplicants were spared but their town was seized and was to remain in english hands for more than two centuries the king and his companions returned to england as conquering heroes The years 1346 and 1347 saw some of the greatest and deadliest fighting in Plantagenet history, but beyond these scenes of heroism and cruelty, resistance and privation, another far more destructive form of death was gathering on the fringes of Europe, spreading down from the Asian steppe, and entering Europe via its trading ports with the east. It travelled at a speed that even the deadliest army in Christendom could not match, By 1347 the plague was coming, and it could not be stopped. THE DEATH OF A PRINCESS The English summer of 1348 was wet, but in defiance of the weather England fairly blazed with glory. The King had returned in October in triumph. Calais had been taken, and French advances in Gascony were stemmed philip vi had been humiliated on the battlefield and in diplomatic meetings that resulted in a year-long truce the scots had been smashed the royal family and the country celebrated in style